Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Call the confession today continues in Proverbs. Today we're in chapter 19, verse 18. First of all, I'd like to read the verse from the King James. Chasten thy son while chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. I'll read also like to read the passage also from the English Standard Version. From there we see particularly the note, the imperative that we need to provide discipline for our children. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Parents are warned against a foolish indulgence of their children who are naughty or ill-tempered. The cure for such behavior is a discipline, is discipline applied to them in wisdom and in faith. Otherwise, if such behavior continues unchecked, that child grows up into an adult body that will likely come under the discipline of the civil magistrate, or if they slip through those fingers, then more fearful than that would be the vengeance of God. Matthew Henry states the following. Do not say that it is all in good time to correct them. No, as soon as ever there appears a corrupt disposition in them, check it immediately before it gets head and takes root and is hardened into a habit. Chasten thy son while there is hope. For perhaps he if left alone, uh, he will be past hope and a much greater chastening will not do that which would a now lesser effect. In other words, it's better, easier to discipline now than in the future. And he goes on to say, it's easy as plucking up weeds as soon as they spring up. And we know this from our own gardening. The second half of this verse addresses a typical parental response to a child's tears and crying when discipline is required. A child, a child quickly learns to beg and to plead, to promise, to cry, and to scream to avoid discipline. However, we must look past those tears now to save him and you much worse crying later. It's ungodly pity that hinders us from doing our duty for their happiness and for their good. No good parent enjoys chasing children, for he would much rather hold them tenderly and enjoy their happy company. But the goal of saving them from hell must drive us to our duty. True love is not just hugs and kisses. True love is correction, and withholding correction is hatred. If you spare the rod, you hate your son, for you are creating future trouble for him, and this choice will come back to haunt both of you. If you have young children, there's hope today. Do not plan on doing tomorrow what needs to be done now. And when you least feel like it, when you least feel you're able to discipline your children, is when you need to get up out of the chair, because if you don't, your case may soon become distant. If you have been neglectful in the past, then confess your sin fully to God, and begging for mercy for these children. He does forgive and, and can mercifully help you recover the lost opportunities. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Invite you to kneel where you are. So far in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher taught us two weeks ago in chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, that everything under the sun is vaporous because of the empty repetitions and cycles which men and the world are forced to share and to endure. Last week in chapter 
1 verse 14 to chapter 2 verse 11, we learn that the wisdom and labor and efforts of men do not satisfy or gain us any lasting profit. Only the temporary enjoyment of the work or the sweet rest which comes from a job well done. But in the end, it's all passing. In today's text, Solomon considers death the enemy of men, the wages of sin, and the final foe which every man faces under the sun. Solomon starts out in his contemplation of death by looking at life in the light of his experience and observations. We read in verse 12, Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Solomon's just finished telling us about the search for wisdom and madness and folly in life. His greatness and his search to seek out and to understand everything under the sun. And now he tells us that he stopped, or rather turned, to consider all the things that he has done. At the end of his life, he ponders. He stops and he ponders and then he turns and he asks, What can the man do who follows me? But first notice that he is prefiguring his meditation about death by thinking about his successor. Solomon knows he must be replaced and he will have a successor. But then he answers his own question. That man, whoever follows him, cannot do more than what Solomon has done. He says, only what, what the king has already done. And in fact... We know that he actually did much less. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and he inherited all of Solomon's wealth. And he thought that he could excel his father's wisdom and greatness. In fact, he told the men of Israel that his little finger would be bigger than his father's waist. But God judges men, and God split his kingdom in half. Back to Solomon. When Solomon determined that his successor couldn't improve on his works, he pondered his works, and he makes an excellent, though morose, observation. Verses 13 to 15. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me, and why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. Wisdom is better than folly. That's an excellent observation. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. He understood the way things worked. He had a, a knowledge and understanding of science and, and the world. And he saw when he looked out on the world that folly was idiocy. And wisdom was in and of itself better than that. But life happens to everybody. So Solomon ponders, why should I be more wise than the fool? What advantage do I have? Why do I have an advantage if I suffer the same as the fool does? In life there are many things that wise men suffer along with the fools. Drought, floods, earthquakes, and hailstorms are natural disasters that aren't respecters of persons. They happen to the wise and the fool alike. Moreover, social phenomena such as economic downturns and housing bubbles and wars and oppressive regimes, they all oppress the wise and the fool alike. 
Maybe the advantage for the wise is that there's more glory for them than for fools. It's true. Solomon certainly had much more glory than his court jester. But he also had a lot more work to do. He had a lot more responsibility. He was probably a lot more tired. And moreover, that glory is relative. In the big scheme of things, it's all vapor because we all die. And in verse 16, he says that. For there is no more remembrance of the wise man than of the fool forever. There may be more glory for a wise man than a fool now, but forever, there's, there's no difference. The wise man and the fool are both forgotten. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Solomon's life and his experience and his observation taught him that wisdom is better than folly, and the wise is better than the fool, but death is the great equalizer. Everybody dies. Everybody returns to the death, to, to dust. Everybody feeds the worms. Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. Every man since Adam died and returned to dust, except for Jesus Christ. It's pretty close to 100% death rate. With a fair amount of certitude, I can say that every soul in this building, this morning, will die someday. And you all know this to be true. The wise and the fool both die. You cannot buy your way out of death. And death is not a popular topic in our, in our culture. We minimize it. We hide from it. We ignore it and we dodge it. It's the peculiar fixation of funeral directors, estate taxes, and the goth subculture. Simply put, we, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to meditate on it. It's a downer. Instead, we're obsessed with youth and vitality. We, we're bombarded with products that make us look and feel younger. Our, med our medical establishment tries to deliver us from all the pain and the suffering of death. And all the while, every day, all over the world, people are dying. And Solomon, being a wise man that he is, he sees this. And he's not afraid of it. He ponders it and he considers. But he does have a powerful reaction to it. So let's meditate a bit on the vanity which death brings. Solomon's reaction is that he hates life. He hates his work. He despairs of his labor. The first reaction that Solomon has to the vanity of death, the vanity that death brings is that he hated life because he was distressed by the work that needed to be done for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. Verse 17, Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all his vanity and grasping for the wind. Death is the ultimate cause. It's the root of all the vanity of life. Because we die, life is vain. Life is vain, but it's vain because we die. And because life is vain, the work that life requires of all of us is evil. That makes life unbearable. It's something to be hated. 
And again, this goes back to the curse in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. If you live, you have to work. If you want to eat, you have to work. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. The promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden when he put them there was, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And what did they do? They ate of the tree. And thus their life is vain as Solomon's was. And the second reaction Solomon had to the vanity of death, first he hates life because it's work, but then he hated all of his work. He hated all of his work and he despaired of all of his work because it was vain. He had no control over how his successor would use it. Verses 18 through 21, Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled, and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I toiled under the sun. For there's a man whose labors with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who's not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. This kind of thinking says this. It says, life isn't fair. It's not fair. Somebody else is going to get all the stuff that I worked for. Solomon despaired because of all the work. He has worked. And the work was evil. It was burdensome. And he's tired. And what's he left with at the end of it? Is as a resentment of it all. He spent his entire life laboring so hard to, to achieve greatness. And in the end, when he stops and he looks back over his, his kingdom, his realm, and all of the glory that was Solomon's land, he realized he himself had no ultimate profit from it. He had to work really hard, and, and he despairs. And this is why, verses 22 and 23, For what has man for all his labor, and for the striving of his heart, with which he is toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful, and his work burdens him. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. This is why there is no profit. His work is hard, and he has no rest. He will die the same as the fool. And in the end, they're both in the same place. They're in the ground. This is vanity, and Solomon is depressed. And depression is a very real issue under the sun. Resentment, bitterness, and discontent are all over the place. Sin has made our labor evil, and we suffer because of it. So here we have Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, and he's gotten us all down. He's dragged us to the pits of despair. Death has taken the advantage that the wise man has, and he's leveled the playing field. There's no difference between the wise and the fool in the end. In the end, no matter how much wind we can successfully shepherd, chasing the wind, 
No matter how good we are at that, it all slips through our fingers. And we're left with nothing. And rather, we become nothing. And this also is vanity. What's the point of life? But now we arrive at a surprising proclamation. Solomon's about to conclude the first section of the book of Ecclesiastes. First he talked about the repetitions in this world that make it vain. Then he talked about how all the work he did didn't give him satisfaction. Now he's talking about death and how that makes it all vain. And now he gets to the end of the book, the end of this section of the book. And the whole point of this section of the book, remember, was that man can't do it on his own. So first we have a few textual considerations in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 reads this. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. The problem with that, that rendering is that it doesn't accurately reflect the Hebrew. It's the, the construction of nothing is better for a man is very similar to what the Hebrew actually says. What the Hebrew actually says is that there is no good in a man. There is no good in a man. There's no inherent goodness in us that we should eat and drink and that our soul should enjoy labor in our good. Enjoy good in our labor. And this changes the import of this verse to deny the inherent goodness in men. Here Solomon has been trying to seek, he sets his heart to search after wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And his, his conclusion is that there's nothing good in me that's going to give me the right to eat and to drink and to enjoy good in my life. It's not in me. There's nothing in us that makes our work enjoyable. And in verse 25, it ends more than I. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? And this is actually a textual variant. There, the, the Hebrew says more than I in many manuscripts, but there are some Hebrew manuscripts and Septuagint and a couple other uh, manuscripts that read apart from him, referring back to God. More than I should read apart from him. And it refers back to God at the end of verse 24. And this is a difference that is found in several manuscripts. But it makes a lot more sense in the context of Solomon's argument here. Who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than God? I mean, apart from God. Who can? Remember, Solomon hasn't been showing us his capacity for enjoyment. He's been depressed. He's hating life. He's hating his work. He's despairing. How does it make sense for him to say, who can have enjoyment more than I? If Solomon can't have any enjoyment because he's depressed, then we've all got a problem. So now with the, with the changes, the text reads like this. There is no good in a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment apart from him? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. In these verses we see 
First, the man doesn't deserve food, drink, or joy on his own. And God designed it that way. There's no good in a man that he should enjoy these things. And Solomon saw that that was from the hand of God. God made it that way. Man does not have the answers. Food and drink and joy are gifts from God. And the only men who can eat and enjoy it are given that power by Him. Who can eat or who can have enjoyment apart from Him? Think about the complexities involved in our body, bodily processes. We're all hanging on by a thread. You can't hold your breath very much longer than a minute or two. And then you're done. It doesn't take much for us to lose our joy in things. There's been a stomach bug going through our community. It takes a little bit of the joy out of eating. Or even out of living, for that matter. Colds and coughs and sniffles. All these things are sufferings that we endure. They're, they're death. But they inhibit our joy. They, in, they inhibit our joy. And so God designed it that way. That there's nothing automatically good about us that we deserve to have joy or food or drink. And the reason God designed it that way was because men need to come to Him for life, for food, for wisdom and knowledge, and for enjoyment. God is trying to teach us all a lesson. When our first parents sinned in the garden and they sought knowledge apart from Him, the knowledge they gained brought with it a terrible price. The problem, death. But also all the little deaths that precede our final death. And speaking of pain and suffering and the evil burdens which drove Solomon to despair. So first we see that man doesn't deserve good on his own. It's not in him. But next we notice that the proper conclusion of what we've been studying in Ecclesiastes so far is this. Even in all of Solomon's wisdom, perhaps because of his wisdom, he must turn to God for the answers. This also I saw was from the hand of God. When Solomon gets to the end of the rope of human wisdom, the only place to turn is up. And that's where he should have started out in the first place. In fact, that is where he started in the first place. When Solomon inherited the kingdom, and God came to him and said, Ask of me anything you want, Solomon. Solomon asked for wisdom from God. And that's why he is Solomon. That's why he is the wisest man who ever lived. Because God gave him what he asked. But in the end, he comes right back full circle. It's right in with our vain repetition. Back to God. We have to turn to God because there's, there's an end of the rope for human wisdom and it's despair. God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. Men cannot achieve these things apart from Him. 
Think about that for a moment. Men love to forget God. We're good at that. We like to think that we're the masters of our own little universes. We get really caught up in stuff. We spend a lot of time worrying about the things we invest ourselves in. About our jobs, our houses, our investment, our pets, cars, our wives, husbands, our children, about money. There's no shortage of things that compete for our focus and interest. But everything that we put in the place of God is an idol. And if we put our trust in them, we're doomed to experience the dis- disappointment that comes with that. The despair that, dro- that, that Solomon ends up in. Solomon's here reminding us that life demands faith. Or at least the good life demands faith. Because while God blesses the man who is good in his sight, the man of faith, the man who's coming to God for his mercy, God gives the sinner the work of providing for the good man. He's running in circles. And he's despairing. He doesn't have life. He's, he's, he's living a living death. And finally we see how faith has given Solomon an answer to his previously unanswerable queries. In verse 18 to 19 we read, Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I showed myself wise under the sun. This is vanity. So he says, who knows whether the wise or the fool is going to inherit my goods? But here at the end of the the, the text, Solomon says, for God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So they're both vanity. Notice that the vanity under the sun remains. But the sense is that God is in control. Faith gives Solomon the ability to enjoy the vanity. Because he doesn't have to worry about whether it's going to a wise or a fool after him. God will deal with that. God is in control. He is shepherding the spirits. He is directing the spirits of men. And this also applies to Solomon's complaint in verse 21, where Solomon lamented that he must leave his stuff behind to someone who hasn't worked for it. Here at the end, in the wisdom of faith, Solomon expresses that God is the giver of blessings. Wise men do leave an inheritance behind them. But they inherited it in the first place. What we have is not ours. God gave it to us. Most of what wise men have is the fruit of receiving gifts. Tribute from kings. Taxpayers. Gifts from the Queen of Sheba. That's what Solomon had. Interest from investments. But even more than that, he inherited the kingdom from his father. And wisdom from God. Because God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. Solomon's father prepared 
the materials to build the temple to God. And his heavenly father gave him a wise and understanding heart. So yes, whoever inherits it hasn't worked for it, but neither did you. There's nothing good in you that you have all this stuff. It's just God's grace. And it also applies to Solomon's question of what profit does a man have in all his labor. He ended up saying that we're full of sorrowful days and burdensome work and restless nights. But the answer here at the end of the chapter is that God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. Receive the gift. It's a gift. The wise man enjoys the vanity. Enjoy it. Be grateful. Be thankful. Enjoy it because it's a gift. Life is a gift. Solomon left the world naked. But that's how he came into the world anyway. All of it was vapor, and all of it was a gift. Praise God, the great giver of gifts. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, 
the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.